Good morning, church. I'm excited to be here with you guys today and uh, and open God's word with you and 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 study with you today. If you uh, if you have your Bibles or your phones, uh, will you go with me to Acts 16, 16 through 24? We're gonna drop y'all in the middle of a massive book and uh, see what we can do with it. Uh, I know I'm outside of your normal sermon series, but uh, I just feel like the Lord has a, a really special thing uh, for us in this passage today. So uh, will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? All right, Luke writes, verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments, tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had, had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, this passage is just packed with a lot of really crazy and cool things that is happening. And so it's, it's been a blast for me to uh, kind of dig into and see what the Lord is doing in this passage. And I, and I hope it's a blessing for you as well. Uh, thanks again to, to um, Jamie and the elders here at Crosspoint for allowing me to be here this morning. It, it's a joy to, to be with you this morning. I think what we're gonna see in this passage is it shows us the idols that societies are susceptible to, and most importantly, what happens to those idols when they're confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Tim Keller, who was a, a pastor in New York City, he just passed away a couple of weeks ago. He was a famous evangelist and, and just had an incredible heart for the lost in New York City. Uh, but he was also a, a faithful pastor to a really large church in New York City. He had this question that he would ask people to kind of gauge where their spiritual formation was at, where they were at with God. He would ask them, does God ever argue with you? Does, does what we know about God ever press on our hearts? Does it ever create an uncomfortable situation in our hearts, in our lives with what we truly love? I think it's a good question for us to ask ourselves often too, to ask each other, right? Uh, and we should be really honest about what is becoming too valuable or too important, or just it, it's getting to a place in our heart where it doesn't belong. What is becoming an ultimate thing in our lives? We should be asking ourselves. This passage, the main idea, it's all about when the gospel is proclaimed, our deepest rooted idols will be confronted. I've got a super easy outline to track with this morning. If you take notes, I want us to first see the gospel proclaimed. And then second, I want us to look at the idol confronted. 
All right, so the gospel proclaimed. I want to give some uh, background and contextual info about where we're at uh, in the book of Acts because I'm, I'm dropping us into the 16th chapter, which isn't super fair to you guys, but we're going to get through it, all right? Um, so in Acts 16, we are watching the birth of a church, and it's the, it's the birth of a, a really uh, famous church and, and one that's really special to Paul. We'll, we'll talk more about that later. Um, they get a whole letter to them written uh, in the New Testament, so they're kind of a big deal, right? This is, the, uh, this is the church in Philippi being born. So in the passage before this, uh, we see Paul, he has a dream. Paul and Silas, they're traveling all around. Paul has a dream that they should go to Macedonia, which that was the opposite direction of where Paul and, and Silas were trying to uh, to go. So Paul has this dream that they should go to Macedonia. And I, and I love the faith of Paul and his friends, uh, because not once do they say like, hey, Paul, you ate some bad cheese last night, man. Like that, that's a weird dream. We're not supposed to go this way. We need to go over here. They just go. They were with him on this journey, trusting that what the Lord had given to him was, was going to be uh, what the Lord had for them. All right, so the passage right before this, they arrive in the town of Philippi, which is a, a leading city in a district of Macedonia. And, and Paul meets a woman named Lydia. She was a, a dealer in purple cloth. And so that just means that like she was wealthy. She had status. She was a, a significant woman uh, in this significant city. And Luke says that she was a worshiper of God. So she definitely had some sort of understanding of, of who the Lord is, what it meant to be a follower of the Lord. And so then Paul teaches her about the gospel. The Lord opens her heart and Lydia believes. It's incredibly normal, if we're being honest, which I think is so beautiful. And there's a whole sermon there uh, because I, I bet that that story resonates deeply with us, with most of us, right? But today we see another story of the gospel going out to somebody in the town of Philippi, the story of another convert, the story of, of someone going, being bold and, and showing the, the ways of Jesus Christ to somebody, and then the Lord being faithful and calling another saint to himself. We see in this passage the, the story of a slave girl who in, in just about every category that I can think of is different than Lydia, than the first convert. If Lydia was the normative way by which most people enter into the kingdom of God, she's the, the 95% of people's stories in this life. This slave girl, she, she is the 5%. This is not the normative way into the kingdom. And I want to I wanna camp out here for a little bit because the means of salvation, they're the same, right? They were ordinary. But the recipients that we have seen believed the gospel in Philippi so far could not be more different. Lydia and the slave girl, they're different in age, right? Lydia was a grown woman and the slave girl was just that. She was a slave. Uh, Lydia, uh, they were different in socioeconomic status. Lydia was wealthy. To be a, a dealer of purple clothing meant that she, she would have... Uh, dealt with royalty. She would have dealt with people with status. The slave girl, she was, uh, you know, a servant. She was making money for others while Lydia was making money for herself. We aren't told the slave girl's name, but Lydia is significant enough that she's the only one in her household whose name we know. The Holy Spirit by Luke's writing is showing us that there is no set of circumstances significant enough to disqualify us from the gospel. 
the, the furthest ends of the socioeconomic spectrum, they're well within the reach of Christ. The, any, any sort of spectrum that we want to put people on and label them with is well within the reach of Jesus Christ. The gospel is for all. The, the, this girl, she didn't even have agency like Lydia had. Lydia moved under her own will, but the slave girl, she was under a, a demonic spirit. And, and it doesn't, uh, most people do think that this is a demonic spirit, uh, oh my goodness, demonic spirit. And, and I, I would agree. I think that's for sure uh, because this spirit was, was giving her the ability to accurately predict the events of the future. We know that in a couple of ways. Uh, she's making the, the owners, uh, her slave owners, a lot of money. And I think like a fortune teller who's not accurate, you're only going to go to once. You're not going to have a recurring clientele base, right? Uh, and so I think we kind of know that her predictions were legitimate because she's making a lot of money. Uh, she had a reputation. So these, these fortunes, this, these uh, predictions, they're coming true. Yet the source of that truth was demonic in nature. But there's a, a deeper thing that gets going on in the way that we translate this passage. And, and I want to point it out to you guys um, because it's, it's really interesting. It's really cool. And, but first, I, I just want to say that nothing in this, in this passage is translated wrong. I don't want you to doubt your English Bibles. They're really good. And what we have here is incredible. But there's, there's a word in this passage that only appears one time in the whole New Testament. Uh, that word, it, if you look at uh, verse Sorry, if you look at verse 16, it's the spirit of divination. It's, it's used one time in the New Testament, and that word is pythona. Now, if you're like me, Dan pointed out, I'm a Florida native. I've been to the Everglades, and I, kn I know what pythons are, all right? That is not a Greek word. That's a Florida word, okay? Uh, but this word is actually, it, it, uh, it comes from Greek mythology. We encounter a story about a python. Uh, so Luke is making an awesome point here that would have got picked up by Greek readers that we just, we don't see in our English text. And so I'm, I'm going to draw it out for us. Uh, the story, it varies a little, but to keep it simple, the Python was especially sacred to the God Apollo. All right. And the God Apollo was the son of Zeus, who was the chief deity in Greek mythology. And Apollo, he would use pythons to communicate as like an oracle to humans. So through the Python, uh, Apollo would speak to humans. So for somebody to have the spirit of Python, like this slave girl does, it would mean that a person was capable of divination in Greek mythology. And so Luke is pointing that out to us here. Here's what's super important. In Philippi, there was a whole temple to Apollo. So this, this Python-Apollo combo was something that would have deeply resonated with the Philippians because it was something that was very normal for them. It was ingrained in their city. The point is that this girl was involved in this cultish practice in some way where she was telling the future of the people who would come to see her. And here's the crazy thing though. What a Greek reader would have seen when they were reading Acts was that this, this fortune teller, uh, Luke is saying, she would have been under the power of Apollo, right? Under the power of the son of Zeus. So for them, they would have had to have understood that when their Greek gods encountered the son of the living God. So when, when the son of Zeus encountered the son of the Lord, even their gods needed to testify that the message of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus is the only way of salvation. 
everything that becomes an idol in our lives will eventually be forced to testify that it is unworthy of the glory that the Lord is worthy of. Nothing that we can do for ourselves, no amount of service to Zeus or Apollo, no good or uh, amount of money stored, no taxes that we paid to Rome or, or you know, the U.S., no amount of great relationships, no amount of anything within ourselves is able to save us. It is only through the blood of the Lamb of God who was slain for us. The grace of God that we see revealed to us through Jesus is the only thing that provides salvation for us. And so we have to recognize that if this demon-possessed slave girl is loved by Jesus enough to be given an encounter with the gospel, then we must know that this gospel is for everyone. Often, you know, I feel like, I think people feel like there's a a checklist that they need to finish before they come to God, right? Before the gospel can become good for us, I have to clean up this mess or put out this fire. But that is just so untrue. There is one box that people need to check before the gospel of Jesus becomes good for them. And that's, that's that they are a sinner in need of a savior. The only thing that we must believe before the gospel becomes good for us is that we are sinners. This slave girl, she had no agency before she encountered the apostles and began saying that they were servants of the most high, proclaiming the way of salvation. She had nothing that she could offer to the ministry of the apostles. And I I love that Paul even initially says that she was an inconvenience to them. He acts out of great annoyance is what Luke says. Because it underscores that not only was she a benefit, but humanly speaking, she was an inconvenience. So why is that good news for us? Because it means that we don't have to convince ourselves that we don't have problems before we can come to God, right? That it will never be an inconvenience to Jesus. It's true that we have mess. And it's true that that mess may even be an inconvenience to uh, you know, others around us. But we are never an inconvenience. We are never a mess to Jesus Christ. It is never a disqualification. Whoever the Lord wants to call to himself is up to the Lord himself, mess and all. All we know is that we have been called to to go and, and preach the gospel, right? The Lord will do the rest. If you're like me, maybe Lydia's conversion makes a little bit more sense to you. She's going to fit in a little better in the church. She's going to be able to do a lot more for the church than this slave girl can, right? And I think it's normal that we get caught off guard by this this narrative immediately after what's a really normal way of salvation. But Jesus builds his church on humans and humans are messy and none of us are the same. And that's part of the beauty of the church, right? He is crafting this beautiful mosaic of of broken pieces into a beautiful community that looks like his kingdom. So quit looking at, you know, your friends and your neighbors, your coworkers, and, and wanting them, hoping that they will become this square peg that you can, you know, use the, the hammer of the gospel and, and they'll go straight into this square hole. It's not how it works. Recognize that the gospel is the lifeline for all humans who are born into sin. And so we proclaim this gospel boldly to all. 
The gospel is good because it comes from our good father. It's a gift to us. And if we don't want everyone around us to have what we have in Christ, then church, we're, we're a hateful people, right? We need to stop looking at people and running through this, you know, mental, like American ninja warrior obstacle course of if person X or person Y is more likely to believe in the gospel. And we just need to realize that person X and Y both need the gospel. The truth of the matter is that anytime someone comes to believe in Jesus, the miracle is just as amazing as it ever was. We should never get over the miracle of dead becoming alive. When we hear the gospel and believe, we come alive in Christ. We die to our sin and we, we live the full life of being united to Christ. We become truly alive because we get what we were designed to have. And that's life with God through this life, in death, and for eternity. In Christ, we become truly alive because we get what we were designed to have. This gospel, it confronts and it rattles every single aspect of our life and work and play. It confronts the deepest idols that beg and scream for our attention. So now we're gonna, we're gonna look at the idols confronted in this passage. Idol is, is a really common word that we throw around in churches a lot, but I don't really think that we have a, a great idea of, of what an idol really means sometimes um, because we all, we all know that it's, you know, the golden calf in Exodus, right? When, when Moses is coming down with the law of the Lord and the Israelites are, are worshiping this gold statue, right? We all know that it's the, the gold statue and, and your friend's living room that he had growing up. We all know that what, what those idols are, but you know, for me, it's really easy for an idol to become the 11 guys in orange and blue that I'll watch run up and down a football field for three hours on every Saturday. Right. Um, and then I spend hours trying to figure out which 17 year olds are going to come play football for them, uh, in the off season. We all know that, you know, we can make a money out of idol, uh, or I'm sorry, we can make an idol out of money, uh, and it's easy to do when we have a lot of money, right? But we don't really talk about how we still have an idol of money when we have no money and we feel that pit in our stomach of, of like, oh man, what am I going to do this week? That, that's saying the same thing in, in plenty as it is in loss. You know, your idol might be your spouse. It might be the desire that you have for a spouse. Both of these are good things, Right? But church, an idol is any secondary thing that we place in the spot of the ultimate thing in our lives. An idol is any secondary thing that we make the ultimate thing. Even good things, when made the ultimate thing, become idols. And man, idols will just destroy our life. I think one of my favorite stories in scripture comes from uh, 1 Samuel 5. It's the story of... Uh, the Philistines, they have just defeated the Israelites in a battle and they steal the Ark of the Covenant. So they take it back to, uh, to their, their nation and they put it in their temple to the God Dagon. Dagon was this massive statue, right? And uh, on a pedestal. And so they place the Ark of the Covenant in, at the feet of Dagon in his temple. And then the next morning they come into the temple and Dagon has fallen over flat on his face. So that's like, they're like, oh, that's, that's weird. You know, let's put him back up on his pedestal and, and move on. And then they go out the next morning, they come back in. Dagon has again fallen flat on his face. This time his hands are shattered. His head has fallen on. 
And it's, it's just a, it's a crazy story because even our greatest idols cannot stand when they encounter what truly is the ultimate thing. And so this is why idolatry is, is dangerous for us, yes, and also for the thing that we're idolizing. Your spouse doesn't belong in the place where the Lord belongs. And it's, it's bad for you and your spouse when they are. So in Philippi, they had their idol fall on its face when it encounters the living God as well. The ultimate thing to the people of Philippi, it's not Jesus. And it, it's not even the temple to Apollo that they have in their, in their town. The idol that needs to be toppled in the Philippians is the same idol that I'm sure a lot of us could, you know, have toppled in our lives as well today too. It's the idol of self. I asked the question earlier, does God ever argue with you? And I think in this passage, we see the idol of self in an absolute like courtroom drama TV legal battle with the heart of the Philippians. It presents in two unique ways in this passage. So it happens first, we'll see on an individualistic level. And then secondly, we see how this idol has grown in the hearts of the Philippians as a communal level. I mean, we're going we're gonna to look at both those. Individually, we see it in verse 19. We see it in the way that the idol of self will lead to exploitative gain. Luke writes that, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seize Paul and Silas and take them before the magistrates. So the owners of the slave girl, who's now liberated uh, from the demonic spirit that she was inflicted with, they're not happy for her. But now they, they feel like they've become the victim in this story because they've realized that their hope of gain was gone. They don't see this girl as, as anything more than money to be made. And that's just horrible. Church, we condemn any word that reduces the dignity and value of a person to monetary value or that, or that justifies the enslavement of people for someone else's gain. But are we willing to own our own sin when it comes to how we view people? You know, I'm all too guilty of, of sometimes seeing people and, and not asking the question, who is this person to God? But instead, the, the first question that I ask is, who can this person be to me? What can this person be for me? You know, when we see people with dollar signs on top of our, their heads, we're no better than the slave owners who seized Paul and Silas for liberating the slave girl from the demon that possessed her. So maybe you don't see people with dollar signs over their head, but, but if you see people through the lens of, of what they can do for you, what they can provide to your relationship, or, or like what you perceive their social status to be, and, and then have a desire to like be recognized with them, like we've got an idol of self here too that needs to be toppled before God, right? There's this show that I've watched a few episodes of. Uh, all of the episodes are standalone commentary on some aspect of our society, some aspect of our culture. There's an episode commenting, it, it's showing the idea of a society who's addicted to like social media and their phones. It's not, that's not us, right? Not us. Um, this episode, it's, it's about people and their relationship with their social media presence. And, and so for every interaction that they have, you know, they'll, they'll have their phone and they'll interact with somebody and then they'll rate that person on a scale of one to five stars. So it's like, I'm, I'm grading all of you guys right now on how well you're listening to me and you guys are grading my sermon. Uh, 
It's, it's just a horrible way to uh, to treat people. And, and and everybody can see your grade uh, and I can see all of your guys' grades too. Like you can see mine, I can see yours. We're totally exposed to each other. Uh, you're watching my grade go down right now. I'm watching all yours go up because you guys are just the greatest church ever. Um, but but a higher grade means that life is easier for you. So so rent becomes cheaper. You get a discount on rent. You have access to cooler social outings. Uh, you get access to certain areas in your neighborhood or city, more exclusivity. Uh, your your uh, you know you get better flights, better car rentals. Things become easier for you. And then the worse your social capital is, the worse your grade is, life gets really hard, right? Uh, bad rental cars, you know, all of the opposites of the things that I just mentioned. So the main character of this show, she starts with a really great rating. And then slowly she, well, she gets invited to this, she has, gets invited to this party and she has the opportunity to take her like good rating to a really like great rating. But through, a, you know, circumstances and misfortune events, Throughout the episode, her rating is plummeting. And, and because of that, she ends up in prison by the end of the episode because she, become, because she becomes so valueless to this society. This might be a caricature of our society, right? But I, I think at our worst, we're not far off from it. Instead of a, a sliding point scale, it's the way that we talk bad about a coworker. You know, it's water cooler gossip. It's, it's well... I don't want to speak badly about this person, but. And we're not rating, but we are influencing the way that other people see other people. And if we're honest, man, we, we all struggle with this in some capacity, but we shouldn't be using people. We can't be using people for exploitative gain. This is not human flourishing. To, to see the Imago Dei in somebody, to see that somebody was made in the image of God and then disregard it for a dollar or some social clout. These slave owners demonstrated that they sinned individually through their idol of self, but then they, they go and they bring Paul and Silas before the civil magistrates and, and they accuse them of something that they weren't doing. And they say the exact thing needed to inadvertently expose the communal idol in Philippi. They expose this communal idol of self, which leads to social conformity over gospel conformity. This is when we see people neglecting a human's value and only focusing on their benefit to the community that they're in. So, so Paul and Silas, they're brought before the civil magistrates and the charges that they're brought up on, they're not even what they did. It's not like the slave owners say, hey, you know, he intervened with our slave, removed a demon, and now we are suing for lost wages. No, that's not what happens. They accuse uh, Paul, who is a Roman citizen, of disrupting social peace and unlawful customs for Roman citizens. And we see the whole town just flip its figurative lid, right? And, and whatever, whatever the slave owner said got them to have this huge emotional response. How do these slave owners get the entire town to immediately flip on these guys? They made their problems the problems of everyone. They isolated the missionaries. They narrated the conversation and made it them versus the town of Philippi. Them versus us. Philippi became distinctly aware that what they cared about and what they perceived Rome to care about 
was being challenged. They saw their idol on its pedestal start wobbling, right? Whatever made Philippi Philippi, they perceived it to begin to be challenged. Maybe it was the peace that they had with Rome, their freedoms, their liberties that they had. Could have been that it was a really nice place to live there, that Rome was pretty hands-off for them. They weren't oppressive. They weren't, you know, unruly. Could have been that they had this idea that they were better off than other Roman colonies and, and they'll be darned if it doesn't stay that way, right? Whatever it was, it was being challenged. Maybe it was that they provide a lot of money to the Roman government. And so they saw these missionaries coming in and, and causing them to, you know, lose that potential to earn money. They got really worried that their identity was being challenged. We know Philippi had a lot of money. Lydia's Purple Goods Emporium was like the equivalent of like a Gucci store next to a Versace store on Rodeo Drive. Like this place had money. Whatever it was, the Philippian people saw their norms being challenged and they show their communal idol that they desperately need to stay on its pedestal. It's that they, they are who they are and they won't apologize for it. They needed their social preferences to be the status quo of everyone in the city. So these trumped up charges that are brought against Paul and Silas, they're not even heard in a fair court. Just the accusation was enough for a verdict to come down. They're beaten, thrown into prison to be held. Paul and Silas, they had no value to the Philippian church. I'm sorry, they had no value to the Philippians because the Philippians perceived them to be attacking their preferences and norms. This is just as bad as seeing dollar signs over their heads. It's that show that I mentioned earlier. It's like, it's like that. The main character's value, she was determined by other people who were perceiving her actions to be worthless. And the more that people saw her as just a low rating, the more people would rate her low and lower her rating would go, so on and so forth. And it gets to a point where it doesn't even matter what she does People are interacting with her and just giving her a one-star rating. Such a horrible way to treat. When we see them with a dollar sign over their heads, we are uh, letting our idols dictate our lives just as much as when we see them with, with a, a rating of how much, how much good they can provide our lives. God informs the way that we treat people, not the way that we are told to think about them by others. But I, I, I just don't think that we are supposed to think about people this way, us versus them. It's, it's not good. Preferences are fine. But when, when the gospel demands that our preferences be submitted to the gospel, we must do it or it exposes an idol. The status quo and societal norms that we live in have massive implications for how people are treated around us. There are people who need to know the goodness of God that Christians experience in Jesus. And we need to be working to tell people about this, no matter if it costs us our comfort. Paul and Silas, they don't fold on their gospel convictions when, when they're thrown into prison. But the biggest issue is that the Philippians don't pull, they don't fold on their social preferences when they're encountered with the gospel. When we see Jesus, when we hear that he is the Messiah, when we recognize that he is the ultimate thing, not our preferences, not our own personal desires, not our finances, our cars or our houses, not the country club that we belong to. When we see that there is space in our lives for one ultimate thing 
And that is Jesus and him crucified. Everything else must submit to that. And only then are we able to view people the right way. No longer do we view them as dollars to be gained or as social capital to be obtained and and utilized or people who are against us and we're over here and they're against that and, and separated from us. But they're people who need the gospel of Jesus, who need to be liberated from the sin that they are dead in. We see them as people who we once were like. This is when our view of self is in the right frame, and then we have the proper view of others. Church, having our idols toppled is hard, right? It's like surgery. It's no fun, and it hurts, and it might take a little bit to recover from, but when you come out of it and the work is done, what you, are, what you have now is health. The product is beautiful. God's way for us to live is the only way of life. It is the only way of wholeness. And and while we live in this already, but not yet, where the kingdom of of God has, has come, but it isn't here in its fullness, we recognize that we aren't perfect. And so sometimes we will have to topple these idols in our lives. But when God argues with us, with, with our preferences and our norms and our opinions and the ways of life and how we spend our time and, and the things that make us have big emotions, God is the one who gets the final say on, on what deserves to be toppled and what, what can stay where it is. Philippi seems to get it figured out as we, as we you know, move through the book of Acts and then later in the New Testament, we see what Paul writes to the Philippian church. We know that it becomes established we, we, the, the, the epistle to the Philippian, the Philippians, it, it seems like it's Paul's like favorite church that he's planted. Like he has one critique for them and it's two people who are arguing about something. It's not even something big enough to like be named. It's not a doctrinal issue. It's just like a disagreement between two church members. They get it figured out. They get their stuff rightly ordered. Is the whole city walking with the Lord? No. But do the members of the church there come together and figure it out? It seems so. We see that this church is marked by generosity. You know, money is a, a thing to be given and, and not a product to be a, a, like hoarded, not something that we exploit other people to amass. We see them not viewing each other as clout to be gained or tidy boxes to fit people inside so that their norms are nice and neat. But when, when people are disagreeing with another, they, they want to figure it out. Like if, if Paul wrote a letter to my church right now, there would be a lot more than just two people disagreeing with each other. Like we're messy people, right? <clears throat> so when we recognize that, that we have an idol on a pedestal where it doesn't belong, and we see that thing start to wobble, are we going to be the kind of people who runs to that pedestal to hold our idol tight and keep it where it's supposed to be? Or are we going to be, are we going to be the kind of people who run to that idol grab it and throw it against the wall so that Jesus can be where he is. I pray that we are a people who always remember that Jesus is the one who belongs on the seat that is reserved for the ultimate thing in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truths that you have for us in it. God, we ask that um, you work in our hearts to 
remind us that you are the one who deserves to be the ultimate thing? Will you remind us that you alone can be the ultimate thing? That when we put something there that isn't you, it's bad for us and it's bad for that thing. God, will you make us more like you each and every day that we walk this earth? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.